Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, Episode 3, where we're traveling to 1945 and the third winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, Aaron Copeland, for his music for the ballet Appalachian Spring. So to begin, like we have kind of set up a tradition now, start with our experiences of the composer and what we know about them. Just cold, even before coming in and looking at uh, these pieces or, or their experiences. So what about you and Aaron Copeland? Aaron Copeland is a very complicated figure for me. I... I well, I think about him in a lot of ways. So I think of him as his early music, which I probably like the most, actually. I like his uh, his jazz. Like the short symphony? Yes, I love the short symphony, symphony, which yeah. is, is a great piece. I like his jazz influence pieces. When he was you know, fresh off the Nadia Boulanger oh, experience. Piano variations. Piano is variations. probably my favorite couple. Yeah. I like all of that music very much. Uh, and he also had a big role in broadening Ives' appeal. He wrote an article about Ives' songs that... Uh, in, for modern music that, that got some play. Mm-hmm. So he was a supporter of Ives, although he didn't really understand a lot of his music, but that's okay. That's what he would say that's as what, a specialist that's in what Ives. That's what he would say. Yeah, that's what I would say. Um, but I, I find that I tend to run, as we like to joke around <laughs> with this, there's a, a person I, I knew who used to say, I tend to run hot and cold with, and then he would put a certain composer's name in. So I tend to run hot and cold with Copeland. I feel like a lot of it is... Uh, frankly boring, I hate mm. to say it, like a lot of his big pieces are kind of dull uh, and uh, I don't know, don't do, do much for me. And then his serialism doesn't really... Like, no inscape for you. No, or, or connotations. Yeah. It's, it seems very forced. Uh, but this piece, I will say, is, uh, is amazing. And I'll, I'll, I'll never forget, I was studying composition at the University of Illinois and my teacher at the time was Paul Martin Zahn, who uh, was a clarinetist and a pretty unique figure uh but he he was like the most far out kind of guy he mm-hmm. loved the most avant-garde music you could ever say but we were talking in a lesson once and he said you know i still think the greatest american piece ever written was the copeland appalachian spring in its original it's 13, 13 yeah. yeah he said that i i think it's the best oh, so for somebody who's who wrote very far out kind of music to say that still recognize uh, it yeah to recognize yeah. it really gives me some kind of uh uh, appreciation, even yeah. more appreciation. So what's your uh, take on <laughs> Mr. Copeland? Well, now I'm a fan. I'm a, I th- it sounds like I'm a bigger fan of Copeland than you are. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I first, my first encounter with Aaron Copeland, I'll never forget this, is, you know, growing up in rural Arkansas, I was a, a pianist and we have, you know, I think it was Federation Music Club and they have competitions wherever. And I remember sitting in the, uh, waiting to go up and play my piece. And someone gets up and plays this piece called Cat and Mouse by Aaron Copeland, which <laughs> yeah. you probably know. Yeah. yeah, early piece. Yeah, very early piece. And, um, you know, very programmatic. You can hear that. But it's very dissonant and mm-hmm. very angular. And I remember sitting there going, that person's just slapping at the piano. They don't know what they're playing. And I was complete. It was like the first piece of, like, modern music I had really ever heard, uh, you know, growing up was playing my... I can't remember if I did Alfred or... Kulau. Um, yeah, or you, know, just play, you know, one of the, the <laughs> piano methods and then yeah. just beginning to get into, you know, real rap. I was very young. This was like 12, 13. Um, and I remember going back to it then when I was in college and ha- having that in the back of my ha- my mind and listening to it and going, this is so tame. Yeah. And after yeah. I listened to a whole bunch of music, um, 
but that sound, and I guess it's also because, uh, as we'll talk about in a couple of episodes when we get to um, Virgil Thompson and film music, is that I've always been a big film music mm-hmm. buff. Mm-hmm. Um, and Copeland's sound is the sound of kind of mid-century film music. It's yeah. everywhere. Um, stemming from this and his other three ball- other two ballets, the um, Rodeo and uh, Billy the Kid, that just kind of set the standard for what American music is going to sound like. Yeah. And so it's, I think it's just so deeply imprinted on me now that... Uh, even and I'll agree that some of his symphonies, the longer symphonies, get a little bit boring. But um, for the most part, uh, I'm I'm all in on Aaron Copeland. Well, that's that's great, and I I, I like a lot of the pieces. I find him as a person very fascinating. Absolutely, and especially the, I think it's in Nadine Hubbs's book uh, about the queer composition of American sound, where she talks about how here's a gay, communist, Jewish guy mm-hmm. from Brooklyn who's associated with the music of the West and supposedly the most American sounding music. Yeah, exactly. And he's, I think she says in the book that if, if, uh, if people knew who, you know, who he actually was or his whole life, that would take a whole different twist on American music. That yeah, this absolutely. is, this is your representative model. Uh, so fascinating figure absolutely. and a huge influential figure. And I'll have to say that as we're, uh, moving now into the kind of first section where we talk about this piece, we're hitting now after looking at the um, the first winner of the, of the Pulitzer, the Schumann piece, and then looking Schumann. Uh, last <laughs> last episode at the um, the Fourth Symphony of Howard Hansen. Now we're hitting into a piece that actually has entered the repertoire that everyone knows. Probably of all the pieces we're going to talk about throughout this entire podcast, yeah. this is the one. Yeah, this is yeah. the the biggest hit. This is when the Pulitzer Prize knocked it out of the park in terms of nailing the piece that's going to have the most distinguished career and make the biggest mark in American music. Telling the story. All right, so this famous piece that we know about, Appalachian Spring. Well, I think of Appalachian Mountains, Mm -hmm. and I'm thinking of uh, Kentucky, I'm thinking of West Virginia, uh, places like that. And uh, I'm thinking that Aaron Copeland really had a great impression of all of these places that when he was writing, <laughs> he was really thinking about Appalachian Mountains, wasn't he? Is that he the story of the was. piece? This, yeah. this Brooklyn, very <laughs> New York Jewish composer absolutely knew what was going on. No. And that's one of the interesting things about the piece is uh, how it came to be and how it ended up happening. So the, the story kind of goes back to Martha Graham. So this is a ballet. Martha Graham, one of the most important American dancers, uh, helped kind of found a whole school of, of American ballet. Um, but like many artists in the mid-century, she didn't have much money <laughs> trying to <laughs> no, <wonder why. laughs> trying to pay for people to write music was always hard. Uh, and so she actually had the um, great good fortune for the Coolidge Foundation. Elizabeth Sprague Coolidge, who's one of the huge patrons uh, in American music, um, helped establish a, a long-running series at the Library of Congress, which is where this piece was originally perform- performed. Uh, it goes to Martha Graham. Uh, Elizabeth Frakes Coolidge goes to Martha Graham and says, I want you to do some one-act ballets. Basically, it sounded like she was kind of trying to recreate the ballet ruse, that idea of, yeah, of yeah. short, punchy ballets, um, and said, let's do a couple on a night. And so this is kind of the beginning of it. And so Martha Graham decides that what she's going to do is to go to Aaron Copeland uh, and begin to work together. Uh, this was 1942 when mm-hmm. she approaches Copeland and says, will you do this? Uh, she sends him a couple of scripts, evidently, that <laughs> describes very rough scripts. This is one of the things about uh, Martha Graham is that she worked from scripts. So a, a farmhouse, a pioneer wedding, and she, this was kind of the idea that she uh, came, came up with. Uh, and at the premiere, this is what the description actually read, uh, the, the story that was being told the ballet. 
part and parcel of our lives is that moment of Pennsylvania spring when there is a garden eastward in Eden. Spring was celebrated by a man and woman building a house with joy and love and prayer, by a revivalist and his followers and their shouts of exaltation, by a pioneering woman with her dreams of the promised land. So you've got very archetypical characters, right? Mm-hmm. So in the this, this story, you've got a bride, and that's what uh, Martha Graham was dancing. Um, the husbandman, <laughs> the pioneer <laughs> woman, uh, the revivalist, who was actually danced by Merce Cunningham. Yes. A yeah. uh, very influ- influential dancer, especially uh, in his partnership with John Cage. Uh, and then there are a bunch of the revivalist followers. So you're talking about a very small cast of, uh, of characters uh, putting this thing together. Mm-hmm. So it's basically telling the story as, so there, as a wedding celebration, essentially, is what's happening, right? It's yeah. kind of a, yeah. And it's notable, I, I always thought it was notable, and certainly listening to it, is the way the whole piece kind of describes, the, if you didn't even know that, you could hear it being kind of like a day, mm-hmm. uh, starting with the dawn and ending with dusk, or kind of the whole yeah, you have, day's events. Yeah, the opening of the, the ballet is this beautiful sunrise. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So... Uh, Copeland, it was originally called Ballet for Martha because there was no title, there was no name. And then looking at a poem by Hart Crane, who's another fascinating figure, certainly, uh, is where they got the the term Appalachian Spring, which uh, there's been some controversy or discussion about whether it's actually about the season of spring or is it about an actual spring? Right. But the ballet, the consensus seems to be that since there's no water... It's the season. It's the season, right. It's the season. Right. And probably most famously is that as he was working on this, uh, Copeland came up and found a melody. There was a, a recently uh, published book of Shaker songs edited by um, Edward Deming Andrews, published in 1940, and he was looking through there and kind of latched onto the song that most people didn't know at the time. It was not... I mean, it's ubiquitous now, but yeah. it's ubiquitous oh, yeah. because of Aaron Copeland. Mm-hmm. Uh, this uh, song, to, uh, the, the Gift to Be Simple, and he really resonated with the melody, and so he took it and made it kind of the centerpiece. But that's really the only connection to Shaker at all. So some yeah. people have this idea that it's about a Shaker wedding. That, that's not in the script at all. It's not, no. nowhere in there. It's just the fact that he resonated with this melody. It's, it's not about a, a Shaker revivalist no. meeting or anything going on. And as he found out later, there were no Shakers in Pennsylvania anyway. Exactly. So it's completely yeah. just made up for the whole thing here. Uh, so, it, yeah, kind of the the genesis of it is very interesting. And I want to get your thought, you know, how this this is the third, kind of sort of like Stravinsky with mm-hmm. Firebird, Petrushka, Rite of Spring. Right. And this is the third with the, starting out with Billy the Kid and then Rodeo and then this. Uh first two are kind of Western-themed, mm-hmm. and then this one is quite different. So how do you feel looking at where that pe- this piece is? Uh, is at the right time, or is it it's kind of evoking this pastoral, small-town, rural atmosphere? Oh, I think that's exactly what he's doing. Um, and it's something that hadn't been done before. So mm. one of the things that... Uh, I th- it's hard for us to go back to 1944 and hear this piece like they would have heard it at that point, I yeah, think, yeah. Um, because we've heard it everywhere, not just in the piece itself, <laughs> commercials but commercials and, and television. TV. And I mean, this piece is used, or music based on this is used to sell everything nowadays. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's hard for us to hear just how novel it would have sounded at that time. Mm-hmm. Especially thinking about our first two winners, which were pretty, well, I mean, they were both, well, the first one was very patriotic uh, and overtly patriotic. And then the, the Hanson not as much, but still had a certain sound. Yeah, but both those pieces, to me, sound European. Yeah, this is the first yeah, piece, yeah, to me, yeah. sound... I can go, yeah, that's American. That's true. 
that's true. So when they wrote the piece, um, it was uh, written in sections, and it was written for a specific place, uh, the theater in the Library of Congress, mm -hmm. and there was not space for a huge number of instruments. And so it was originally written, like, like you said, for 13 instruments, flute, clarinet, bassoon, four violins, two violas, two cellos, a double bass, and a piano. That's all it would fit in the auditorium. Um, and that was originally how it was done, but then he did make a piano version. So mm -hmm. that was the kind of original uh, versions that existed. And the version that we hear now is a later creation. Yeah, so it was in the 50s, I think, or it was the 54 or... The sweet version? The sweet, yeah, the sweet. Well, oh, the I was thinking of the actual orchestral transcription or to make it yeah, into... Yeah, the, the suite came uh, pretty soon. Like, I think 1945 yeah, right is after, when the yeah. suite uh, was first, the first orchestral suite. Right. Um, but in terms of the ballet in its original form... Mm -hmm. um, it's longer. It's much longer yeah. and uh, much more transparent. It's very open mm -hmm. because it's only 13 instruments. Yeah. And we can talk about the uh, different versions or our opinions on yeah. those uh, in our, our next little section here. So after he composed it, um, it was premiered in, and you have the, the information on the premiere. I do. Yes, so it was premiered uh, on Monday, October 30th, 1944 at 8.30 o'clock at the Library of Congress. And it's a program that we have the program here. It was a program devoted to the dance. And so these are all works by uh, well-known composers uh, commissioned by the Sprague Coolidge Foundation and Martha Graham. So it started out, it says here, uh, choreography Martha Graham, costumes Edith Gilfond, musical director Lewis Horst, and sets by the very well-known sculptor and artist Isamu Noguchi. Which is amazing. <laughs> Which I had no <laughs> idea until we started looking into this that yeah. he had done the sets for these shows. Yep. And so the first part, two pieces on the concert were Darius Mio's Imagined Wing, and then Paul Hindemith's Mirror Before Me, and then Intermission, then Appalachian Spring was right after that. So two pieces we've never heard of. And never, still <laughs> and to this day, have never day. heard. <laughs> and, and then Appalachian Spring. So it premieres, yeah, in October 1944. Um, so we're actually just past 75 years. Yes, that's uh, right. Since it was, since right. it was premiered. Um, and you can see a clip of... Uh, we've we've shown this to our class before. Yeah, they made a film of it a couple of years later. They, yeah, they filmed the. Uh, so if you're interested, you can go onto YouTube and you can see a, a video. I think made in the 50s, maybe, mm -hmm. of Martha Graham dancing the the bride. Yeah. Um, I don't know if the sets are the same. Uh, yeah. The one that they broadcast on television, but you can see some of the the dancing, which is very sparse and mm -hmm. very evocative of the of the music. Because one of the things that Martha Graham did was she made this idea and then she got Aaron Copeland's score and she kind of threw out her script. <laughs> and she composed the dance to what Copeland had planned, yeah. what Copeland had composed. So it's a real collaboration between the two <laughs> in terms of putting the dance and the music together. Mm -hmm. Well, it was very successful, obviously, because it won. And so we've got the jury report. We like to read these jury reports from, yes. once again, our good friend Chalmers Clifton. He's there he, for a long time. He was. Shaping. He, uh, that, I think in a later episode, we're going to have to look a little bit more into his history. Just yes. so we can see. Because he's, I mean, he, that's a heavy hand mm -hmm. that he had in picking the winners. And I think we're already beginning to see a kind of trend in who gets picked and the type of music that they write mm -hmm. and kind of their status in the American cultural landscape at the time. Very much so. And uh, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this list. So he's, this is to good old uh, Frank Fackenthal at Columbia mm -hmm. again. Uh, after a careful and long consideration, open discussion followed by secret ballot, the Pulitzer Prize jury has arrived at the following results. 
Four works survived, funny way to put it, a, a very careful plan of elimination agreed to by all three judges, and we rate the works in this order. Number one was Appalachian Spring. Number two, Bernard Rogers, The Passion for Chorus, Soloists, and Orchestra. Mm. Number three, Virgil Thompson, Symphony on a Hymn Tune. Mm. And number four, David Diamond, Symphony Number no. Two. So uh, it ends by saying, I'm attaching a complete list of all the works considered. And it turns out there were over 143 application or under 143 uh, applications for the so it's an amazing growth yes if you think just in two three, three two years, years earlier they basically went and we'll just give it to <laughs> william schumann right <laughs> hey hey bill you have a piece for us yeah, yeah great and now they're having almost 150 yeah. entries to go through i'm fascinated by virgil thompson's symphony on hymn tune because in my mind it's a very similar piece to uh, appalachian spring mm -hmm. in terms of using a very american text um based on hymns, mm -hmm. based on religious tunes. Yeah. So there's those kinds of connections. But it's also a much older piece because Virgil Thompson started writing it in the late 1920s. Oh, really? So the, it oh. was premiered evidently in uh, the 1940s in hmm. the United States. Um, and then you've got Rogers, who's a colleague of yes. Howard Hansen at Eastman. Yes, Eastman grad, uh, taught for many years composition there. And then David Diamond, who also was from Rochester, actually, mm -hmm. uh, but a, a very tonal, yeah. kind of Hanson-esque. It's a very New composer. York, yeah, New York mm -hmm. kind of aesthetic that they're yeah. zeroing in on here. Yeah, very true, and uh, Jewish as well. I think uh, of these, and I don't know about Bernard Rogers, but Virgil Thompson would be the only non-Jew mm -hmm. here too. So interesting, yeah. interesting combination here. Why don't we look at the music itself a little bit? Behind the notes. So now let's talk about the music itself a little bit and the the piece as a whole. And the big question I want to ask you to get things started mm -hmm. is, we hear this piece, like the Rite of Spring, like just about all ballets, we don't hear them as ballets anymore. That's right. They're orchestral pieces. And... How do you think it works as, uh, you know, either way? I mean, we've not, I've never been to see the whole ballet. I've just watched the clip that you talked about. Mm -hmm. uh, does this piece work with, obviously it works, it's very famous, but how do you think it works without the ballet and is it really integral? Because he didn't even know what it was going to be about. It was written, he sort of had this vague notion. Yeah. No, I think it hangs together by itself. Uh, to me, the suite as an orchestral experience does hang together better than just listening to mm. The, the small 13 instrument. Well, I, I'm kind of with your teacher. I kind of prefer the small yeah, 13 instrument, the, the sparseness and the openness of it. Um, but it doesn't have the cohesion of the suite just because of, the, of what he excised and how he put it together. Mm -hmm. But even in the 13 instrument in the original ballet version, I think it holds together because there are enough through lines. There are enough things that come back. Yeah. I mean, just structurally, it really holds together well. So the, the opening comes back again right before we get to the kind of high point of the the shaker tune yep. to give yep. to be simple. Uh, the end basically calls back to the beginning, so you get this nice circular yeah. thing. And and like you said, the kind of the the movement of the day, you feel that you feel the kind of slow growth to mm -hmm. the high point of the middle, and then slow decrescendo. I mean, all those kinds of things I think contribute to it holding together beautifully. I mean, it's just it's really expertly constructed. Yeah, absolutely. And the uh, very tonal, uh, A major is, is... But is it tonal? I'm going to well, push you back on that. I, I'm not I, sure it really is tonal. You throw that word around. I'm not I sure do, that's, I do. that's what uh, it actually is. Hmm. I'd say it's pitch-centric a is lot pitch, of way I, through. I'll, I'll say that, but... Yeah. 
but it's not like you sit there and go, ah, oh, the total gravity, I'm back here. Well, because you have enough. No, it's not. No, okay. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll give you that. It's not but, in a, like a clear functional sense. Yeah. But, but there is a lot of the tension and release uh, of within, within a pitch center that does keep coming back to A, a lot of times, or C, kind of third relations. Yeah, I'll give you that. Uh, so it's more like uh, we think about Stravinsky. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Just kind yes. of saying, <laughs> I'll hit this note enough and you'll feel like it's the center. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so certainly very approachable to listen to. Oh, yeah, it has all the standards. What always stands out about me to, to, uh, to me is uh, the rhythmic aspects. Uh, the bum 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 those kind of motives that keep coming back. And it's the, that's the, the staple Copeland-esque type of rhythm. Yeah. Uh, and very uh, mixed meters and... I heard a performance of it live once, and the pianist got off on the meters, and it just, the whole thing falls fell apart. apart. Of yeah. course. Well, that's yeah. the interesting thing to me about Copeland. I think this is, uh, even going back to, like, um, you know, the famous hoedown from yeah. Rodeo, um, yeah. what makes the rhythm sound more American, and this is what Copeland also says, you know, we have taught before the uh, his book, yes. How to Listen to Music, and he talks about the sense of, uh, in American rhythms, about steadiness mm -hmm. and uh pushing and pulling against that steadiness. So you have that steadiness of rhythm always there, but he's just shifting and moving that yeah. all over the place above that kind of steadiness, which gives it this really great kind of tension rhythmically. Mm -hmm. Right. And then uh, the uh, the instruments, it, what if you had to say the most important instruments in this piece, I mean, I'll start with the clarinet, certainly. Clarinet, absolutely. And he wrote a wonderful clarinet concerto. Mm -hmm. And there's a quote I found that he said he loved the purity of the clarinet. Yeah. And that that's it starts out the piece with a do do do. Well, and that makes sense to that that quote about him thinking it's pure because if you think about the kind of the story that was given to him by Martha Graham and this mm -hmm. kind of let's just tell the simple story of a day. Mm -hmm. um, I think maybe one of the reasons why he talked latched on the simple gifts in addition to um, to turn, turn, right? It's about movement. It's about right. dance. So that, that makes sense. But this kind of purity of that, uh, that nostalgic idea. I mean, during this time period, we have a lot of nostalgia back for yeah. kind of pure American, <laughs> whatever that means, right? That's a very problematic kind of thing. We're in World War II. But, right, yeah. we're in World War II, and we see that um, very much keep the home fires lit, right? It's those kinds <laughs> of yeah. things that I yeah. think that he's playing at. Mm -hmm. uh, and then thinking the, the clarinet as a pure sound, I think, plays exactly into that idea. Yeah. What instrument stands out to you in the piece? The woodwinds as a whole. Yeah. I think the woodwinds as a whole, um, it's kind of like we spoke about uh, in the last episode when we talked about Howard Hansen. Um, he's got a lot of string activity, but that's not really where your ears go. Your no. ears really go to the woodwinds. And in this case, the kind of upper woodwinds, the flute and the clarinet, mm -hmm. to me, are really what kind of stand out. Yeah. It's not even the brass. No, no. Yeah, that's true. You, the, I guess the trumpet has some licks. Uh, they have some licks, but not. Yeah, it's definitely more of the clarinet and the. I hear the flute going. Yeah, very <laughs> much playing all the lick. Yeah, and the bassoon. So you get to this point. You've talked about it numerous times now, but to the simple gifts idea, it's really a theme in variations. Yeah, why don't we hear the the first entrance of that? So yes, the variations on simple gifts. So it does start out very simply, and then and beautifully, and beautifully, yeah. 
And, and he's uh, changed it just a little bit. Yep. Yeah, it's not exactly. <laughs> it's not exactly what he found in the book, so it's changed a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always interesting to me to see which hymns stick with the kind of original printing of the 1940 that he yeah. was, or kind of go with how Aaron Copeland changed it, because it's a little more rhythmically interesting with Aaron Copeland. Definitely, definitely. That's how we know it now. Yeah. Uh, but my favorite part is when the bassoon comes in and does the counter, the, har- the harmonization, because it's not a predictable interval. I mean, they're, they're moving in parallel motion together, but it's not, I don't know, it's very unusual harmonization. Kind of against the main melody. Yeah. And, and then it picks up and gets faster. And and it ends with this huge, grandiose, almost yes. it almost doubles the time. Yeah. So it's only almost like the bum, 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 bum. right? It's really slow yeah. and, and powerful. Mm-hmm. And it's like this culmination of everything you've been listening to. And it's Incredibly effective. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's when the clarinet then comes back with that original opening. Right. Yes, maybe we should listen to that a little bit. So the other thing I think is interesting about the way that he uses the instruments is it's almost like he's emulating American folk instruments that he right. would have been hearing. So you get kind of the, and you also get this in the earlier, but right, you get a little fiddling in there. Um, you get a little bit of the um, the kind of rhythms of uh, what would have been American dance at the time. So all those kinds of things, I think, contribute to it being this idea of American. So that's kind mm-hmm. of my question back to you is, so what about Copeland's sound made people go, Ah, this is American. That's the complicated million-dollar question here, because that's it's it's trotted out as the American piece, right. and part of it is the well, I would say, and this is not original thinking. It's you know, but the large, expansive nature of the, the sort of slowness of time with mm. the big imagining the prairies or the large landscapes of the country. Uh, with the, especially the beginning, mm-hmm. you can definitely picture the mountains and sun rising and all of that. Uh, so it's that would be the slow slowness of it, the open intervals, so lots right. of fifths and fourths, and uh, not it's not triadic. It's it's you know based on pitch center, but other types of intervals. Uh, the rhythmic aspect mm-hmm. gives it the like you're just talking about the hoedown type rhythms or the folksy. Right type rhythms, which I uh, still amazes me because of this guy where he came from and where he's writing this piece mm-hmm. and how did he tap into that? How yeah. did he? How did he really know? You've also got I think the even with the original ballet with thirteen instruments, he spaces out those instruments so widely. Right, you drive a truck Textural, through some of those yeah, spaces. The texture, it's like, yeah, it's just so open. Whereas we think about uh, like German music, mm-hmm. you know, typically the composers. Uh, the sound we get of this like German sound, especially the German orchestral sound, is really dense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Copeland goes the exact opposite way. Yeah, yeah, really thin sounding. So, wh- why is that American though? Like, why? Uh, I guess the sense of possibility, the openness of the uh, West. Yeah, I mean, that, you right, can read I mean, into all. These, you can read those kind uh, of cliches into it. And I think that's kind of what has started to happen. And then I think, so starting with this ballet, this sound was so connected to images of the West mm-hmm. and images of. Americana that it just glued itself oh, yeah. together and in the popular consciousness now you can't separate them out because you've got 
75 years now of mm -hmm. these sounds being connected in yeah. the public consciousness. Yeah, so in a way, this is our real first American quote-unquote mm -hmm. winner of the prize because of its musical materials as well as the subject matter that goes with it. And yeah, I, so of these versions though, do you, what do you think of the orchestral version? Do you like the full orchestra version? It's all right. <laughs> I mean, it's beautiful and it's, yeah. and you know, Copeland conducted it many times and has some uh, glorious recordings of it. But to me, I still like the sparseness of yeah. the original. Me too. The original ballet. It's kind of like, uh, it's the same thing for me with um, Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. I like the original. Mm, the Paul smaller, Whiteman. The Paul Whiteman, the smaller, instead of the big full orchestral version. Yeah. There's just something about the sparseness of those textures that just appeals to me. Yeah, me too. Me too. I've, I've, it seems over, like when I hear the Bernstein recording of the of Appalachian Spring with New York Phil or something, it's just too too heavy, too too much. Yeah. I, feel. I know there's there's other lines and different melodies and things that are, are in there, but yeah, I, pr I prefer the spareness yeah. of the original. Now, Copeland said himself, uh, so he can, as you said, he conducted this a lot, and this piece became very commercial, very nostalgic, all of that. Copeland himself was aware of the pitfalls of empty nostalgia that might mm. torpedo his score, and some years later, after he conducted it frequently, he would write, quote, I have often admonished orchestras, professional and otherwise, not to get too sweet or too sentimental with it. So, I mean, this is hard pioneer life. Yeah. It's not sit down and sing pretty songs. I mean, this is, it's got some grit. You can feel some dirt and, and work, sweat yeah. in this piece and in the dancing. And it's a hot day in, in the mountains or mm -hmm. whatever. And yeah. So don't get too sweet with it. <laughs> we want that hard <laughs> angular edge. Yes, yes. Let's talk just a little bit to finish out today about the post-Pulitzer life of Appalachian Spring. Hit or miss. So we've kind of hit on the fact that this piece has the longest legs of any of the yeah. Pulitzer winners uh, of most of the decades that the prize has been given out. Um, the fact that this piece has become standard, it's one of those that I know you teach it regularly. Um, it's in almost every single textbook, whether you're talking anthology about anthologies, right yeah. uh, whether for music history or music appreciation for collegiate uh, level teaching. It's, it's everywhere. It's definitely, if you think about what pieces of American music are canonic now, mm -hmm. this is at the top of the list. It is. And I'm curious how it, I'm not a Copeland scholar, so I, I I know a lot of music he wrote after this piece, but was it hard for him, I wonder, to replicate this kind of icon of a piece here? I mean, if, thinking about this was 1945, what after that, I guess, fanfare for the common man or things like that really were his you know, spin-offs from after that period, but I don't know. It feels like almost this was a peak. It was hard to get beyond that because this piece. Well, I think this is the, so, um, yeah, so the third symphony ends famously with the fanfare for the common man. This is the, um, probably his next most famous piece yeah. after this one. And it was written at the same time. It's 44 to mm. 46. So he finishes basically working <laughs> on uh, Appalachian Spring and goes immediately to that. But you're right, after this point, um, he's still a very important figure in composing important music. But this is really kind of the, the f most fruitful period of his um, popularity, at least, mm -hmm. in terms of his compositions. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, 
uh, certainly a big hit, certainly very successful. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, the other, we talked about the other pieces that were at the same time, and they, none of them. I mean, I, you, you're a Virgil Thompson fan, as we'll find out in <laughs> two episodes from now. Uh, but these other pieces are never played. And actually, the rare, uh, is the Thompson even played very often? The Thompson gets a little bit of play. It's probably uh, his second most performed piece. Okay. Um, but those other pieces. No. And the other two ballets that were on the premiere concert, same never thing. They kind of, of disappeared yeah. into. Uh, disappearing the history, Hindemith and Mio are played regularly, but not those pieces. No. So before our next episode, you'll have to listen to Imagined Wing by Mio and Mirror Before Me by Hindemith to, uh, and then play uh, Appalachian Spring right after it and see how they see fit how the flow, see how it flows. Yeah, right? that would be interesting. If they're recordings, that's an interesting thing. Yeah, that's true. But that is part of the the history of this piece is that there are so many recordings. Mm-hmm. It's been recorded over and over almost every major american conductor has com- yep. has recorded this piece the different versions so you talked about we've talked about the the original version uh, we've talked about the sweet version that he did in 1945 um there even was uh just uh 2016 there was a brand new full orchestral version of the original graham ballet wow, wow. Uh, completed and it was first performed uh at the, the meadow symphony orchestra down in dallas um it just keeps, yeah. it's an eternal yeah, <laughs> spring of yeah. uh, music for... Literally. Literally, it just yeah. keeps kind of coming again and again and again. Yeah. Well, that's it for this episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. As always, you can find more about this project at our website, hearingthepulitzers.com, where you'll also find links and a short bibliography where you can read more about Aaron Copeland's Appalachian Spring. Be sure to join us next episode. We'll be discussing The Canticle of the Sun what? by Leo Sowerby. Yeah. We're moving from the heights of <laughs> popularity to a piece that very few people will even know the composer. But until then, keep listening. Keep listening.